This is Bible Society's She Too podcast. My name's Rosie Dawson, and I've been discussing some of the so-called texts of terror with women who study and teach about them. They bring different academic and faith perspectives to these neglected biblical passages. But they all believe that they offer a vital resource in today's discussion around the Me Too movement. Bible Society isn't aligned to any single denomination and doesn't necessarily endorse every position taken here, but this podcast is offered to help listeners engage with themes in parts of the Bible that are too important to ignore. The last two stories we dealt with came from the book of Judges, during a time when we are frequently reminded there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they pleased, with awful consequences for women. Well, now we've moved on to the second book of Samuel and there is a king in Israel, And not just any king, but David himself. And yes, you've guessed it. I was joined by Dr. Johanna Stiebert, Associate Professor in Biblical Studies at the University of Leeds, to discuss the rape of Tamar. The story has much in common with those of the other women we've considered so far. But Johanna tells me there's also an important difference. Uniquely here we have the voice, the words and the emotions of a woman who resists rape and suffers rape. And a biblical narrator who depicts a victim of rape with great compassion and great emotion. Tell me before we start, how you're approaching the text. What's your discipline? What are your presuppositions? What are your commitments? I'm a biblical scholar. I've studied uh, biblical Hebrew. I look at the Bible as literature. I'm very interested in the way the story is told and constructed. I'm also a feminist, so I'm particularly interested in women who are very often marginalized in the text. And I'm particularly interested in the human beings who wrote these stories and the human contexts in which these stories flourished. That's my particular focus on this text. Do you have any investment, personal investment in it as a sacred text? I do not, no. I'm not a theologian. I am not a Christian or or Jew, so I, I do not have an investment or a stake in the text. It does not have to function for me as a sacred text. It doesn't have to be right. I don't have to find ways that make the text meaningful or right, no. So if we go to the story now of Tamar, um, tell me who Tamar is. Tamar is the only named daughter of King David, and she is distinguished as a virgin daughter who wears a special garment as a royal virgin daughter. And she is described as, interestingly, not a daughter of King David, but as the sister to his sons, Amnon, the royal firstborn, and Absalom, to whom she seems to be particularly close, presumably because he is a full brother with whom she shares both a father and a mother. And she's quite idealised, isn't she, in the text, would you say? Very, very much so. She's in many ways what we might call the perfect victim. She is young and beautiful and virginal and obedient. We are programmed to sympathise with her and to be on her side. So Amnon, um, Tamar's half-brother wants to sleep with her. And Jonadab, his friend, suggests that he has a way of helping him to do so. So tell me about that. Yes, Jonadab, who is cousin and friend to Amnon, suggests a plan. A rather, He's described as cunning, so he suggests what we might characterise as a rather devious plan for Amnon to suggest to his father, the king, that he is sick and that he wishes Tamar to come and 
prepare food for him. And the plan is quickly set in motion. And what happens? David sends Tamar to her brother's bedside. He requests that she make food in his presence. He sends away the servants, which means that she is left without witness or, or protector. And at this point, he lays hold of her, commands her to lie with him, and she does all she possibly can to refuse him and to talk sense into him. She tells him that such would bring great shame on her, that it would be an outrage in Israel, it would make him one of the scoundrels in Israel, but because he is stronger, he can force her, and so Amnon rapes his half-sister. It's interesting what she says, isn't it? She uses the word outrage. Now, you're the Hebrew scholar, not me, but I've been doing my reading and I'm, I'm told that that word refers to, you know, the most serious crimes mm. in Israel, including, you know, breaking the covenant with Yahweh. Indeed, it refers, it's a word that we might well translate as perversity. It's quite a depraved crime that is suggested by that particular word, yes. The aftermath of the rape is but, well, it's really horrible, isn't it? Yes. Um, the text says that now Amnon hates her, and he hates her with a hate even stronger than the love that he had for her before. Yes, it is so often said that what rape is not about is desire or love, per se, that it is much more about power and control. And what we see in this story is that at first Amnon professes to feel great love and uh, attraction for his sister. And then what we have after the rape is loathing. He can now not get rid of her quickly enough. And he does so very bluntly, calling his servant, having her ejected from the house, the door bolted behind her. A very, very cruel depiction we have here. So she puts ashes on her head. She rents her robe. She cries as she goes. Mm. And it's interesting to me that we so often hear that the response to rape is shame and trying to hide the outrage that's been committed. And what we have here instead is Tamar displaying her desolation, displaying the wrong that has been done to her, performing the actions of a mourner. She has ripped her garment, which interestingly, the garment signifies that she is a royal virgin daughter. It's almost like a public display of the tearing of her hymen we have here we have her crying out loud she is not withdrawing and being silent and hiding what has happened she is crying out to the world that an outrage has been committed I think that's a very powerful part of the story but as so often happens when rape happens within families the family want to keep it secret so Absalom and David don't want this out but we have Tamar speaking out and so any effort to make this, to, to, to hush this up, fails. But you're right, what we don't see is David responding in any effectual way at all. All we read in the text is that he is angry and that he does nothing because he loves his son who is his firstborn. And then Tamar disappears from the story. We don't hear from her again. Yes, in many ways. She is a conduit. She is a tool in a story that is above all, about competitions between men. And yes, while we do have this extraordinary voice of Tamar in the story, we then do see her fade from the story and only reappear insofar that her brother Absalom names his daughter after her rather like a memorial. What happens next is that Absalom, who is very angry about what has happened, sees to it that Amnon is killed. 
The royal family starts to fall apart, including the relationship between Absalom and King David. And Absalom expresses his anger towards his father in a particularly horrible way. Indeed, after he arranges for the murder of Amnon and it is revealed to David that he has harboured the intention of doing so for some two years, Absalom then harbours ambitions to succeed David himself and he mounts a rebellion against his father which leads David having to flee with much of his household but he does leave behind several of his concubines they are called and Absalom I think rape is the right word here. He rapes them. He sleeps publicly with them on the roof of the palace in a tent that is erected there for that purpose, which is a way to humiliate his father through the women that he should be protecting. And the voices of those women we don't hear. And the voices of those women, again, we do not hear. So the writer has told the story of the rape in... uh, one might say, a fairly sympathetic or empathic way. But the story is within the context of a wider story, which is about the falling apart of the royal family. And that is what is really rather disturbing to me, is that the rape of Tamar, the, the, the narrator depicts the harm that is done to her, the grief that she feels that her life is in effect over after this. But we have to remember, this is part of the divine punishment for David's wrong against Uriah, not Bathsheba, interestingly, the, the wrong committed against Uriah the Hittite. Let's just go back a little bit for people who don't know the story. Mm-hmm. Just before the story of Tamar and Amnon, David has taken the wife of Uriah and slept with her. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David wants Uriah to sleep with her so that his adultery is not discovered. Uriah doesn't, so David arranges to have him killed. And then Nathan the prophet arrives, condemns David for what he's done, and says that there will be trouble in David's household, that the child born of the adulterous union with Bathsheba will die, but also that David's women will be violated. So in effect... Tamar and later the concubines of David, who were raped by Absalom, are collateral damage as part of a bigger divine plan. Now, you say divine plan, I might say natural consequences, which the prophet is pointing out. Yes, that's very much, that's uh, certainly a legitimate way to look at it, absolutely. But I think there is quite an interesting shift in the Hebrew Bible, where at one point it is okay that those of later generations be punished for the sins of the father. But there was a shift which is reflected in some of the later prophetic texts, such as by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which says that everybody should be responsible for their own sin and carry the consequences of that sin. And that is not what we see here. I can agree with you that the terrible consequences of an action are pursued here. And the awful impact this can have on not just the person committing the offence, but on those around them, is explored in the story. Why do we have to engage with the story? It's a very human story, and it is, unlike many biblical stories, one that can still touch us, not least because we have this perspective of the rape victim. And I think because terrible consequences of terrible actions are still with us, those are 
things we can still empathize with today. And because rape is still with us, this is a story which, unlike some stories which strike us as very odd and very difficult to make meaningful in the present, is one that can still resonate. Johanna, thank you very much.